Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 170, recorded for the week of June 22nd, 2022. The Cloud Pod is also intentionally paranoid. Good evening, Ryan. How's it going? Very well, very well. How are you? Good. Uh, you know, there was supposed to be, uh, this is supposed to be 171, but uh, Jonathan failed at his one job. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, uh, we did not get an episode out last week, so we apologize for that. As well as we also were late on getting 169 out because of some snafus with Dropbox and my travel and our, our show note editors. Uh, so we were unfortunately able to not get 169 out while I was out. Uh, but uh, it'll come out soon, and then hopefully we'll drop 170 here quickly after that. And uh, so we apologize for the slip-ups in the production schedule. But we're back on track, Ryan, with just me and you. Uh, yep. We didn't fire Jonathan, but we did send him to a terrible place in the Midwest uh, for him to su- you know, suffer in silence for his failures. Yeah. So to adequately consider his the errors of his ways. Right? Exactly. exactly. He had one job while I was gone, and he failed. Uh, and Peter will be back here in a few weeks as well. Uh, he's had some stuff going on. And so uh, we're hoping to get him back uh, here soon. So maybe by July, we'll uh, we'll be back to full staff <laughs> here on the show. So it won't just be uh, two of us mm-hmm. or, or Jonathan and I uh, babbling on endlessly. <laughs> All right. Well, there's a lot to talk about because uh, now this is two weeks of news. So I, I was merciless and I killed a bunch of stories. Uh, so I apologize for the ones I killed. Uh, they weren't interesting anyways. That's how I like to think about it. <laughs> At least they wouldn't have interested Either Ryan or I. Uh, well, first up, uh, Microsoft uh, had a big news announcement last week while I was gone. Uh, they're bending, of course, to legislative mandates and employee sentiment, uh, and they've announced a series of reforms that will curtail or end some of its most controversial workplace policies. Uh, so Microsoft will no longer include non-competition clauses in U.S. employment agreements and will remove these clauses from existing agreements. And all empl- this will affect all employees except senior leadership. Uh, Microsoft will no longer include non-disclosure clauses in settlement and separation agreements with U.S. workers that would prevent them from disclosing allegations of misconduct. The company will publicly disclose salary ranges and job posts in the U.S. starting in January 2023, which is a a bit of a forced action by Washington State on them. And then the last one, Microsoft will commission and publish findings from third-party civil rights audit to be completed in the upcoming fiscal year, scrutinizing workforce policies and practices that impact diversity and inclusion. So take that, Amazon. Yeah. That's that's very interesting. Uh, I I had missed that this is legislature coming in Washington State just because it's been, I think it's been law in Colorado for a while. Uh, And I only know that just because having to update job descriptions to include that. I mean, where it's needed. So I do feel like this is sort of, it's coming, whether that, you know, companies like it or not. Yeah, I mean. They did the right thing there in general on the, the posting salary information. Even even in you know California, you can't request uh, what you know what your current salary is, and you know your post disclose uh, salary ranges if are asked or publicly on the website. Um, so you know you have to kind of do those things here as well. Um, so it's definitely uh, you know a trend that we're seeing, in, especially on the West Coast. Uh, but you know the bigger one for me is the non competition stuff because we talked about yeah. you know how how garbage those are and and the problems they've had with them and. You know, executives leaving, you know, Amazon going to Microsoft and then getting sued and, you know, all the mess of that. So I'm super glad they're finally, you know, starting to see a, a tide swell change in, in technology where that's no longer going to be a thing. Yeah, especially the clauses where it's like, you know, disclosing the details of harassment and those kinds of things. Like obvious policy just to shut people up. That's not cool. Yeah. Glad to see that go. Yep, same. Yeah, Microsoft's been kind of front and front leading a bunch of HR things. You know, they're one of the first companies to get rid of the, the annual review process. They were, you know, now they're doing this as well. So lots of good movement on the Microsoft side. You know, again, Sacha, Sacha showing that the Balmer era is officially dead. Yep, it's nice to see. Yeah. So uh, I, there's an interesting article I found uh, from Target CIO Mike McNamara, uh, where he said he's making a cloud declaration of independence. Uh, and so that intrigued me a little bit. So I read the article and I thought I'd share a couple pieces of it here from you uh, for your interest as well. Uh, so Target was apparently all in on Amazon at one point, hiring uh, Amazon to run its entire e-commerce operation in 2001. Remember when e-commerce was a fad? They're like, we're just going to outsource that to, to Amazon. You can, <laughs> Toys R Us did it. Target apparently did it too. I don't remember the Target as much. I remember Toys R Us, but uh, yeah, different different point in my life, I guess. <laughs> now I would know Target. Circuit City, right? There was a couple yeah. of the electronics. Yeah, I, was, I don't remember Target either. 
Yeah. But anyway, the uh, alliance, though, wound down as the cloud heated up and Target used multiple providers alongside home-built data centers for several years. And then Amazon bought Whole Foods, putting it in direct competition with Target's grocery business. Now, I take umbrance with the fact that Target has a grocery business because <laughs> I don't consider what they have in a Target store a grocery. <laughs> uh, but apparently that conflict pushed them right out the door of Amazon for good. And they said they swore off Amazon altogether. Uh, so now Target runs on an application layer built around vanilla cloud computing services offered by Google Cloud and Microsoft Azure, as well as its own data centers, and composed of several different open source projects like Kubernetes, Docker, and Spinnaker. This allows their CIO to run e-commerce and in-store workloads on three different platforms as he sees fit. Uh, he had a couple other quotes here that I thought were interesting as well. Uh, you know, he said he talked to a lot of people who expressed interest in doing multi-cloud and hybrid. Uh, and then in practice, it tends not to work out so well for them. And the question to the Target CIO was, can you explain how that went for Target in terms of migrating off one cloud onto another and maintaining your own assets as well? And so he, he went on to talk about they've created this new thing called the Target Application Platform, uh, and they've separated their infrastructure from application and, and make it, their infrastructure more of a runtime service. Uh, they're using both Google and Microsoft just as infrastructure as a service and think that's important because that means that we can maintain the flexibility of place of workloads without worrying about it. And if you actually use the tool sets provided by the provider, you know their proprietary databases, proprietary cluster management, then you do not get locked in and it becomes more difficult to move from cloud to cloud. Uh, the reporter also then asked, uh, a lot of people I've talked to understand the lock-in problem but prefer the managed service just for ease of use. Uh, he said the target strategy requires you to build all the expertise in-house. How long did that take and how did that go? And uh, the gentleman, the CIO, said this is a scale thing. At Target, got over 4,000 engineers. Uh, we are a scale operation. If I was a much, much smaller operation, there's no way I could build all of those tools. And I'd have to even argue a company the size of Target having 4,000 IT engineers <laughs> seems like a lot to me. But uh, That's a lot, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I get it that, you know, you have infrastructure. You know, typically box retailers like Best Buy and Target, et cetera, they have infrastructure they run in store in addition to infrastructure uh, that they run on the cloud for their e-commerce platform. And they have the same, apparently the same commerce platform for both their e-store and their in-store uh, sales, which is good. Uh, and so, you know, net-net, they had to run both and they had to have some expertise to run their on-premise uh, infrastructure on the store. But, uh, you know, Kubernetes, I guess, is their solution. But why not just go with, like, Anthos or something? Are they running Kubernetes bare metal everywhere? That seems awful, too. I mean, they probably started before Anthos and so they, you know, because a lot of people had, and you know, so they're, they're, you know, they probably put a lot of investment into that, that platform, you know, which is just an abstraction layer, right? So it's, it's bridging the gap between the different APIs at the infrastructure layer and the developers to request team, your request infrastructure. So it's, you know, it's the classic, you know, build versus buy, you can build it um, and it's very customizable to what you want fits exactly for your workload. You just have to have 4,000 engineers. Um, and so that's, it makes sense. I mean, or it can make sense. It just depends what your priorities are. Yeah. You know, sometimes you see these things and you're just like, yeah, you know, the next CIO comes in is going to be like, yeah, screw all this. <laughs> yeah, it's just one of those things. Like there, there's, you know, opinion, opinions run deep in tech. You know, I know we're pretty anti-multi-cloud for, you know, lowest common denominator cloud, which this very much feels like lowest common denominator cloud. Um, you know, but I think we, we do both support the multi-cloud for the right workload in the right place, the right time uh, type setup, if it makes sense for your business. But, uh, you know, there's so many opinions and, and none of the opinions are wrong or right. It's just a matter of, you know, can you manage the cost effectively and can you manage the complexity in your business? And that's really what you do at the end of the day. I mean, there's there's always going to be work. And so it's it depends on what you want to, you know, pass off on, on a vendor or someone else, you know, do I really want to be in the business of running Kubernetes? Do I really want to be in the business of running Kafka? You know, a lot of these platform shared services, you know, it's great when I don't have to maintain that and I can, you know, just leverage a partnered offered platform for that. And it's, you know, it's simple, it's easy. It spins up and down as I need and that's great. But you know, once you have an established workloads, doing these things, getting the cost can be very, you know, where you need them can be very difficult. So I understand the, the move otherwise. It's, it's going to be different for everyone. And you're right, you know, the next CIO or even this same CIO might change his mind three months time. Probably longer. But. Yeah. And then the last general news article I saw was one that I, I have opinions about. Uh, but Archera <laughs> uh, had a guest post on VentureBeat and they're calling for the standardized billing of data, uh, which I thought was a standardized bill, and I was like, well, that's just silly. Uh, but they're actually talking about the way you calculate 
the, the cost of an asset in cloud they'd like to standardize. Uh, with more companies adopting multi-cloud strategies, it's more important than ever that you can compare costs and commitments from providers and true services, except that is impossible with all the different ways the vendors bill uh, to do the same things. Non-standardized building creates three problems that from their perspective. First, managing different types of commitments across clouds where the terms and implementations vary. Second is tracking expenses with different savings attribution schemes and cost metrics definitions such as net, amortized, unblinded, etc. being used across different providers. Third is the increased use of multi-cloud platforms and managed services within them, each with its own tagging conventions. And Artera ultimately sees that number one is AWS maturity, number two is Azure, and number three is falling behind on the maturity scale of billing data. Uh, Archer is working with the FinOps Foundation, and I love those guys over there. Uh, but I don't know about this one. And cloud customers to develop an open billing standard that can be used to compare projects using different vendors. And the first area they're tackling is to define the parameters for usage-based pricing of different components. This way you can not face with comparing services that are charged for the hour with those that are charged for the amount of usage. And the next is developing common language to characterize commitment discounts between vendors and the level of flexibility the discount allows you. This allows customers to feel confident they're using the best vendor for the job. So, I mean, from a standardized reporting perspective and being able to take, like, here's how you compare this service, you know, GCP compute instances to Amazon EC2 instances, and here's how you look at that, I can see that being helpful and, and valuable. Um, but, you know, calling for a standard in the industry, I think, is probably a, bit, a, a road too far traveled. Yeah. No, it's, you know, it's, it's I like pipe dreams, <laughs> you know, I'm, and I'm a fan of standardization. But I'm not really sure. Like, yeah, this looks like a you know a very hard problem to tackle. I'm not sure where I would start, and I'm not really sure where the return is. Like, I get the you know being able to compare across these clouds, but really, don't you don't you really want to just evaluate your costs to your value that you're getting? Like, I'm not real sure where they where the comparison really is, or you know how much value there would be in having that open standard. Yeah, I mean, again, uh, and then, you know, you had to ask a question, like, who's Artera? <laughs> and I had to ask that question. Mm -hmm. yep. uh, and, you know, they, of course, are, they have a vested interest in this because they're, you know, ensure and optimize your cloud costs and visibility and, and these things. Um, but the one of the things that they do that I've actually heard about a few times now, which I think is sort of interesting as a concept, is they they do these insured EC2 commitments, or they, or they basically, they buy the commitment and they resell the commitment to you. So you don't have the risk of uh, one-year or three-year commitments. Uh, and so there, there's, it's basically like an arbitrage for uh, reserve instances, and it's sort of interesting uh, for different use cases oh, wow. where you might need this. Uh, and so that's that's actually a really interesting use case, and I can see why you need to compare because you, know, you want to get the best deal for this thing you need temporarily. It makes sense. Um, so yeah, I, I'm actually going to maybe reach out to them and see if I can get their CEO to come on and talk about it because it's actually a really interesting problem statement. They're like, yeah, I, you know, I want I want to be able to commit. To get the best discount, but I don't want necessarily to be committed if my business changes. And how do I how do I de-risk that? And it's uh, it's quite an interesting model. And we're seeing many of the MSPs uh, doing it as well. Yeah, I mean it's stolen straight from the finance sector. Right? You see this, you know, in clearing houses and other financial, you know, even escrow kind of. Uh, that's kind of crazy. Yeah, but very interesting. Like it's you know what an itch. I like it. Yeah. Well, and it, it makes a lot of sense for, you know, MSPs or for resellers like Foghorn um, as well, because then they can mitigate risk across their portfolio. And since so they're doing all the billing anyways, they have optimizations they can provide um, that, you know, you as a direct buyer might not be able to do. So there, there's lots of interesting use cases for it. Um, you know, and I assume if Peter was here, he'd tell us what they're thinking about at Foghorn. But, uh, you know, there's definitely, you know, lots of investment and lots of interesting financial management happening in the world of cloud these days to how do you mitigate risk? Especially with, you know, a pending recession, <laughs> apparently in our future, yeah. interest rates going up. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on to AWS news. Uh, first up is uh, AWS is launching their new mainframe modernization service to help you modernize your mainframe applications and deploy them to AWS fully managed runtime environments. Uh, the new service allow also provides tools and resources to help you plan, implement migration and modernization. The process is broken down into assess, mobilize, migrate, and modernize, and operate and optimize. Uh, the assess and mobilize phase are pretty boring, but gives you access to analysis and development tools to discover the scope of your application portfolio and to transform source code as needed. Uh, typically, the service will help you determine your uh, compute assets and applications and identify all data and dependencies of your mainframe application. And then it gets to the cool part. Uh, with the application automation refactoring, it uses Blue Age tools to convert your COBOL, PL1, or JCL code to Java services and scripts. 
and generates modern code, data access, and data format by implementing pattern and rules, transform screens, index files, and batch applications to a modern application stack. Uh, or if you choose just to replatform with minimal changes, you can do that with fully managed runtimes that come installed with microfocused mainframe compatible components, such as transaction managers, data mapping tools, screens, and map readers, and batch execution environments with minimal changes. Uh, you can also leverage CloudFormation templates to easily create continuous integration and CD pipelines for all of this mainframe work. Uh, it also deploys and configures for monitoring services uh, and all things. Get your mainframe to the cloud today with these services. <laughs> Having never worked with a mainframe workload, I, I don't like. I don't understand the intricacies, but you know, I, I really wonder why someone, if this is going to be done for you, would choose to re-platform versus the thing that's going to rewrite these things. It seems that no matter what, the, you know, the performance is going to be, you know, different anyway. Yeah, it, it it definitely would be different, and you know, it's not exactly you know, the reason why people run mainframes is because of very very high volumes of workloads, and and so you know, you're you have to take some risk here and going through the process. But I, I assume that's why you need that CI/CD platform because it's one of those things you have to you have to iterate multiple times before you get it right. Yeah, um, and and really have it to the point where you're really confident in this and. Yeah, I sort of always felt like Amazon was going to just you know create a mainframe as a service offering, <laughs> buy a bunch of IBM mainframes that they you know sell out to you because that's been a model of mainframe for a long time, CPU slicing and rentals and that kind of thing. Uh, but it seems like no, no, they're going to go down this other path where you know the answer is you you convert to a more modern architecture, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think that that's a good call, you know, because it's you know the, those things where you know if you keep it old forever, especially like Cobol. You know, there's a shortage of developers who know how to do this. And apparently, they all work at Amazon building this. You know these tools now. So it's crazy. Yeah, well, I, I think the Blue H tools is a third party that does that, and then uh, yeah. using MicroFocus's mainframe compatibility layer. That's that's all outside of Amazon. So they're not really investing themselves heavily in Cobol, but they're, they're definitely okay. you know partnering with the right people to make it happen. But I mean, because these again, these are these are tools that anybody can get. You could you could also do this for <laughs> Google. You could also do this for Azure. Like there's nothing um, that I believe that you can't do here. Really, at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah, I, I also missed the mainframe era. I, I I got into computing, you know, in the late '90s, so I was in the beginning of the client server era, uh, which all the all the mainframe guys were like, "It's a fad." <laughs> to all of us. Uh, so yeah. We're here now, many decades later, in, in the cloud era, which is sort of like move all your compute back to a centralized place. So, you know, we're kind of moving more and more, you know, back to the old ways in some ways. Well, uh, AWS MGN, which is the application migration service, uh, has some updates. This was released over a year ago for lift and shift migrations. And initially, this only supported moving existing systems via disk replication as part of the migration. And so you took a box that was on-prem, and you moved it over, and then you're like, crap, now I have to go deploy a bunch of stuff to it, which was easy if you had Chef installed or, or other configuration management tools, but, you know, your infrastructure may have changed. <laughs> Unfortunately, with that, you know, that move, maybe that Chef server isn't where it used to be. Uh, and so now they're giving you a set of optional post-launch actions that can provide additional support for your migration and modernization efforts. And the actions are initiated and managed by the AWS Systems Manager agent, which can be automatically installed as the first post-launch action. Uh, so they've come out with four actions today with more planning to, become, uh, to planning to come. Installing the agent, of course, we just talked about. Second one is disaster recovering, which installs the AWS Elastic Disaster Recovery Service agent on each server and configures replication to target regions. Uh, CentOS conversion to convert from a CentOS server to a Rocky Linux server, uh, and SUSE subscription conversion to move your from SUSE Linux subscription to an AWS provided SUSE Linux subscription, uh, which you know doesn't sound very exciting off the top of the head, but uh, you know those are potentially good jumping off points and a lot of other really cool things they could do as post actions uh, like configure you know configure it into a load balancer or configure it into some type of storage configuration that could be interesting. Um, so I think those are nice to see enhancements coming. Look forward to seeing more enhancements to the MGM service over time. The OS conversions seem very targeted, right? There's specific clientele that was probably developed for. Yeah, this is when I so this is when I totally got. I was like, okay, you're you know you want to you move to an Amazon Linux thing. I get that. The CentOS to Rocky Linux was actually one that kind of caught my eye by surprise because you know we've already heard Amazon Linux is moving towards uh, the Fedora core, um, and then the a bunch of other people moving from CentOS to Rocky Linux, which is kind of the successor to CentOS uh, in a big way. 
So it, it's sort of interesting. I, I sort of wonder if Amazon is going to back away from their decision to go towards Fedora and move to Rocky, or are they going to continue down this path? Or, or do we have Amazon Linux 3 on the hot on the future, which will be yeah. the Rocky Linux version versus the Amazon Linux 2, which made the pivot to Fedora core? Has anyone been happy with a move from like CentOS base to Fedora? I don't. I can't remember anyone actually doing that and liking it. I, I haven't heard of anybody either yeah. doing it or even trying to do it. They're all stuck on CentOS 5 or CentOS 6, I think is uh, what I've heard most of the time. But uh, yeah, it, it's definitely going to be a problem for people. <laughs> the more these operating systems end of life and get more patches out there that they can't patch, it's going to be a bit of a problem. Well, Adam Lushinsky from The Information uh, got a chance to sit down with Adam Slipsky for an interview. So the Adam versus Adam interview. <laughs> uh, and so I pulled out some quotes here to talk about with you. Um, so, uh, you know, Adam uh, Slipsky had to say, what AWS Pioneer is taking everything which sits in the data center and basically making it go away. Uh, that helps create what he'll, he'll call the illusion of infinite capacity as far as any one customer is concerned. They can use a ton of capacity. They can shrink down to almost nothing or be anywhere in between. It just happens magically for them. Um, he did point out that, you know, they did start out with storage, database, and basic computing as the beginning, but he's super excited about things they've moved up level, like Amazon Connect, uh, and he highlighted the Barclays, for example, which uh, went from uh, nothing to Amazon Connect in 10 days, a process that normally would have taken them five days during the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, and Slipsky has uh, these powerful managed services are the key differentiator from, from what Amazon built originally, which for a long time the pitch to customers was let AWS handle the data center muck of everyday computing. Adam contends that they're still in the muck business, but it's not about removing something they know how to do, uh, but just don't do very well. To It's about enabling them to do things many of them wouldn't know how to do at all, and them being IT teams, of course. Uh, the example that he uses IoT FleetWise, which is a terrible example because no one needs that other than automakers, but uh, it helps automakers keep tabs remotely on vehicle fleets so they do better maintenance and improve autonomous driving capabilities. Uh, you know, He highlights that uh, Amazon has a multi-billion dollar war chest that they could go on acquisition spree if they wanted to, uh, but when questioned about regulatory issues, he uh, deflected quickly. <laughs> However, he did say that if uh, they got into a situation where they're trying to buy someone, their argument would be that the IT market segment is just such a broad and huge area. And despite being the cloud leader, they're just a small part of the IT market segment as a whole, and there are many, many strong and robust competitors in the space. Uh, they did talk about uh, macroeconomics uh, and, you know, overall, what does that mean to AWS? And does that mean that startups are going to come up and kill AWS and get taken over? Or is AWS going to continue to enable customers to realize lower costs and flexibility of the cloud? And, of course, Adam Slipsky said yeah, he prefers that they continue to see advantages of the cloud <laughs> versus the first one. Yeah. Uh, but uh, which was a kind of sort of obvious, dumb question, but... Uh, these are those issues. But he did point out that there are micro issues, uh, microeconomic issues in the process, like including the supply chain and some of the difficulties in getting chips. And it's been a scramble over the last few years to get what they need, uh, you know, in their particular space. And then uh, he said the most exciting thing he thinks is the sustainability move. And he has a quote here. I think of it as a massive opportunity to make the planet better, a massive opportunity to be a leader and to inspire other companies and other organizations not only follow us, but to hopefully outdo us in sustainability. So. Pretty good little interview. Not a lot of, you know, like, oh, my God, that's amazing. Uh, but, you know, interesting insights into how Adam Slipsky thinks. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a new era, right? You know, so that's, it's good to know, um, you know, how he thinks, where he thinks he, the, the priorities are. You know, I'm, you know, as a, you know, personally, I like the sustainability mention. I do think that it's sort of a corporate fad, and you know, but I also feel like it's a corporate fad that will probably end up being slightly better. <laughs> And if it wasn't there, so I'm good with it. So I'm glad to hear that mentioned. But yeah, it's cool. Yeah. Well, uh, speaking of Amazon Connect, uh, the high-volume outbound communication capability of Amazon Connect is now generally available, meaning all of your new extended warranty calls are now powered by Amazon Connect. Uh, And Ryan, I do have an extended warranty to sell you on your car. (laughs) uh, Get in line. Yeah. Basically, what uh, the reason why this exists is because customers only answer about 10% of the automated calls they receive because, yeah, it's all spam. Yeah. Meaning that uh, your call agents could waste a ton of time uh, dialing and waiting for customers who will never answer or getting to voicemails. To address this, Amazon Connect outbound campaign set a high-volume outbound call capability that allows you to proactively reach more of your customers across voice, uh, email, and text messaging. And when using this capability, you will have a scalable way for proactive outreach for hundreds to millions of your customers, and you will increase agent productivity 
uh, all through the simplicity of Amazon Connect. It does detect if you have voicemail box. It does detect all those things. We can leave different messages uh, for you. And so this is nice uh, as long as you're not using it for bad things. Yeah, I'm I, I'm 100% against this. I hate this with every bone in my body. Um, I recently found out that my voicemail has been full because I get enough junk calls now that leave half of the voicemail message where they, you know, that it actually filled up my voicemail and no one can, you know, leave any more messages. And so, like, this is just, it's, it's out of hand. The technology here doesn't make sense to me. You know, if you think about what they've done with email and, and the, you know, always having the bounce complaints, um, you know, they've, they've done a really good job there with an SES will come after you quite quickly and brutally in my experience, but none of that exists for connect and, and text messages or phone calls or any of that. And I'd like to see technology invested there where you can label these things as spam somehow. Well, I mean, again, I don't think they're trying to go for the, after the spam caller crowd per se. They're trying to go for, you know, uh, your insurance company and they're trying to reach out to you because you haven't paid your bill or or those things uh, trying to help you from a service perspective, I assume. But yeah, how do they protect it from spammers? I assume, you know, they require yeah, you to... It's protecting against it. Yeah. I, I assume it's about publishing, you know, proper information to caller ID so people actually know who's calling. <laughs> Uh, but I, you know, I have noticed since it got announced that uh, I have seen more spam calls. <laughs> so, just mm-hmm. I'm not blaming Amazon for my increase in spam calls, but it does feel sort of suspicious. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it also been one of the massive of three or four data breaches that happened last three weeks too with phone numbers and exposed <laughs> data points. But you know, I'm going to blame Amazon. <laughs> hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pub possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. Uh, well, in a feature that I can say, Amazon, what took you so long? Uh, you can finally disable ciphers and things like TLS 1.0 at the AD level in AWS managed Microsoft AD and security teams and compliance people around the world go wild for this feature because it has been annoying forever that you could not disable things that you would normally do in Microsoft AD. And so it's good to see them. So finally loosening the purse strings a little bit on uh, Microsoft managed AD uh, from AWS. So you can actually do things that actually are important to your security and posture of your domain controller. Yeah, I wonder what what the difficulty is here because these things are pretty native to to AD, and so I, it seems much more about a service constraint and probably an intentional one where they don't want to add too much to the service to bloat it out for some reason. Well, I think it's the same reason why they, you know, they don't like you messing with the SQL internals. They don't like you messing with the Oracle internals because they need it to be standardized. Because if it's standardized, they can manage it. And if you start doing weird things that they don't understand, then it makes it harder for them to support. So I, I suspect it's, you know, they they were trying to keep AD as standardized as possible, and they didn't let you do schema modifications and things that you would normally typically do, um, you know, in AD, you know, beyond a certain set of fields. Uh, and that's all tied to them trying to be standardized as possible. Is my guess. And then uh, announcing a new AWS bills page experience, which I was like, great, a new billing console. But then I realized it's just the bills page. <laughs> so the bills page has gone from the old uh, click, you know, all your services you paid money for, be able to click and expand and see how much, how many hours and minutes you have in each region to a more uh, UI consistent AWS feel. Uh, so they do look like the normal AWS uh, billing console, you know, like uh, everything else they've done for the UI in the last few years kind of has that same look and feel now. Has some nice uh, intricacies built into it where you can jump into savings and a couple other options right away from inside the bill, which is kind of cool. Uh, so you can, it basically gives you tabs so you can kind of break into like, hey, I want to see my spend versus I want to see my savings on this particular asset and resource. So it, it is actually nice. Uh, I don't know really typically say that about the new page experiences, but I, I did not hate this one uh, personally. <laughs> wow. That's not impressive. High, it's not high praise, I know. But. <laughs> <laughs> 
I haven't seen it, so I've got exact. I've got no foot feedback whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, uh, now having seen Google billing and others, I you know they're all they're all bad. <laughs> they're all bad. <laughs> there's no good. Yeah, there is no good way to show this data that meets the masses. I think the, the reality I've learned is that every company has their own specific needs and how they want to see billing data for their use cases, and it's just it's impossible to be able to do that. Some of the stories I killed actually this week. Uh, there's some new APIs, I think, for billing data, for billing tags to get populated from your AWS resources all the way through to your bill now, which like that was a that was a big missing thing for a long time. It just wasn't interesting. Oh, to yeah. Well, that's terrific. Yeah, good to see that finally. Uh, well, let's move to Google. Uh, so we we laughingly said, uh, you know, where, where's Google on Pi Day with their updated versions of you know calculating Pi? <laughs> Uh, and apparently they just didn't hit the deadline because uh, now they're announcing that they've uh, successfully reached 100 trillion digits of pi. Uh, they mentioned that in three years ago, in 2019, they did 31.4 trillion digits. Uh, then someone else usurped them and got to 62.8 million uh, in 2020, which was not Google. Uh, but now they beat that company too, and they're at 100 trillion digits of pi. And this is a testament to how much faster Google Cloud infrastructure gets year over year. And they highlight the fact they leverage the new Intu machine family, 100 gigabits of egress bandwidth, Google virtual NICs, and balanced persistent desks to preach this out. And it's actually not, uh, they actually have the full infrastructure here. It, they're not even the biggest Intu instances. They did uh, the Intu uh, High Mem 128, which is 128 vCPUs and 864 gigs of RAM. Uh, they started the job on Thursday, October 14th, and it finished on Monday, March 21st. Uh, they didn't actually announce this until now, so I guess they, they sort of made Pi Day, but uh, they didn't they get the press release out in time. So total last time: 157 days, 23 hours, 31 minutes, and 7.651 seconds. They used uh, 663 terabytes of storage uh, available to the box, but only used 515 terabytes. Sorry. And total I/O they read 43.5 petabytes read versus 38.5 petabytes written for 82 petabytes total. I had a joke about you know them wanting to calculate this out and, and advertise it for Pi Day, but it, you know, they got so much further that they just got to it now, but they got killed. So apparently it's just bad scheduling in the press corps. Right. <laughs> when was Pi Day? Pi, when was Pi Day? It is Pi Day. It's March 14th, right? Right, yeah. So they were a little bit after. Yeah, I guess the, I mean, so they were like, we missed it because it was, you know, we finished on March 21st. So we missed it by six days. So now it's just too late. Just doesn't matter when we ship it. <laughs> as long as we ship it at some point. Actually, on that March 14th, duh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, reimagining AutoML uh, with Google Research, announcing the new Vertex AI tabular workflows. And for those in the ML camp, you're excited about this. For the, everyone else, I'm sorry. Google has loved the adoption of their AI <laughs> platforms, but they are aware that you want more control, flexibility, and transparency in your AutoML for tabular data. Historically, the only solution has been to use Vertex AI custom training, forcing you to create a whole ML pipeline from scratch, as well as an ML team, DevOps pipeline, etc. And Google realized the need to provide options in the middle between AutoML and custom training, which is why they are announcing the Vertex AI tabular workflows, integrated, fully managed, scalable pipelines for end-to-end -end ML with tabular data. This includes AutoML products and new items for Google research teams and open source projects. The tabular workflows are fully managed by the Vertex AI team, so users don't need to worry about updates, dependencies, and conflicts, and they can easily scale to large data sets, so teams don't need to re-engineer infrastructure as workloads grow. Uh, and each workflow is paired with the perfect hardware configuration for the best performance. Lastly, each workflow is deeply integrated with the rest of the Vertex AI ML Ops Suite, the Vertex pipelines, and experiment tracking, allowing teams to run many more experiments in less time. You know, not knowing anything about AutoML and AI in general, like or development, uh, I always wonder if this is is this the equivalent of you know Beanstalk or Cloud Run or you know some of the more curated sort of uh, in you know work work environments. And so, like from an AI developer perspective, I wonder if these are very constraining or if these are really freeing. Because you know, it's one of those things where it's like at the beginning, it's great. And then you want to change that one custom thing. Mm. Not so much. Well, I think that's what they're trying to address, right? Because that's basically what they had before was they had, you know, here's the automatic thing that just does the thing and you should be happy with it. And then, yeah, like, oh, but I need to tweak this one thing. And they're like, oh, sorry, now go do a custom training. That's that's pretty brutal. So and yeah. all the benefits we sold you about why you can use this thing no longer work because now you have to have a team and all that. And so if it, if it actually avoids you having to have a full ML 
AI team, I guess it, it's a win. So, yeah. uh, well, for those in ML teams who don't really know what they're doing uh, and want to just uh, take advantage of marketplaces of pre-built ML AI code, uh, particularly the NVIDIA NGC catalog are in happy uh, spirits day because the GPU, uh, CPU, or sorry, GPU optimized AI software delivered by the NVIDIA GCP NGC catalog is now developed in collaboration with GCP. This feature simplifies the deployment of AI software to a single click from the NC, NGC catalog. This allows data scientists to deploy frameworks, software development, development kits, and Jupyter Notebooks directly to Vertex AI Workbench, a new managed Jupyter Notebook service on top of Vertex AI. Google service for machine learning. So now you can get all that machine learning magic from a, from a marketplace, uh, which was named NGC, which is hard to remember with GCP, and I apologize for messing that up. <laughs> <laughs> it's the one chance I have at learning this stuff, so I'm glad they're putting it out there. Yeah, I think it's cool. It's, typically, we want this quick start. It's like, hey, I have this data that is sort of standardized, and I want to be able to do something magical with it, but I don't know what I'm doing to get started. And yeah, it's a good, it's a good way to start. You, know, you can get a use case that you understand, and much easier to understand what it's doing. So check that out if you are trying to do anything with big ML and Jupyter and all these good things. Well, Google's giving you two new capabilities in BigQuery to secure your sensitive data. First up is the general availability of column-level encryption functions, and we talked about this previously on a prior show. This basically allows you to encrypt the data in a column uh, based on user ID or attribute tag uh, if they can access the encrypted data or the unencrypted data. Uh, all right directly inside BigQuery, allowing you to have higher levels of security and encryption of sensitive data. And then the next thing is a preview of dynamic masking in BigQuery, which allow you to dynamically mask data uh, like credit card or social security that you want to have in BigQuery, but you don't necessarily, don't necessarily want to have readily available uh, to your end user. So these are both now available to you inside of BigQuery. Yeah, that dynamic masking is, I mean, it's a fantastic ability to be able to do that. Just it's one thing when your data is very structured and you know you can you can set that at you know the column level but in a lot of cases if you think about you know just free text forms or that kind of thing where you don't really know having that dynamic masking can really save you and, and protect data it's very difficult right because you're going to end up masking something you shouldn't or you know or not masking something but that kind of thing but it's you know it's this is a great great add to the tool it just makes big query big query even more powerful in the market yeah. Well, it's nice, too, because not only does the dynamic masking provide that capability based on your access, but you also provide things like partial access. So um, let's say you have, if you had full access, you'd have the full social security number, but now with partial access, we we data dynamically mask it to just, you know, XXX dash XX dash, you know, four more Xs. Um, or, you know, we can immediately turn it into an SHA-256 uh, data type. Uh, so, you know, on the fly. So, you know, the data is still stored in the database the way we need it to be, but no one else can see it or, you know, things that do need to see it have to see it in a way that makes sense from a particular system. Um, you can also make it always null, so then people don't think the data exists at all, <laughs> which is nice uh, for some use cases too. Um, so lots of great uh, opportunities in the new BigQuery capabilities for sensitive data. Uh, Google is introducing a new tool called GCP Diag, which is an open source tool to detect configurations in Google Cloud projects maintained by the Google Cloud support team and with contributions from open source. GCP Diag was born out of the idea that we could automate troubleshooting certain common issues using information returned from Google Cloud API calls. The GCP Diag command line tool, which runs many automated checks called rules and creates a report about all the issues that it detects. Rules are classified by the category of issue that they detect, such as, as uh, ERR for likely mistakes, Best BP for best practices, and sec, SEC for security issues. Similar to coding linting tools that you run against your code, you run GCP Diag to inspect your GCP resources to catch those common misconfiguration issues, all from the command line. It comes with more than 70 rules that detect common issues encountered by the cloud, support team, troubleshooting customer issues today. I had nothing. <laughs> you did have the not bad look <laughs> on your face. Like the Obama not bad meme was like totally yeah, yeah. work on that. In the video, which none of our listeners have, but access to, but I did. I was, was yeah, not bad, not bad, <laughs> not yeah. bad, not bad. Yeah. It's uh, kind of how I feel like this kind of neat. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's nice to have a tool like this, and you know, even seeing some of the testing on it. Uh, you know, serial port logging is enabled. You know, this is a thing it's looking for. Google API service agent has the editor role. Serial logs don't contain secure boot error messages, etc. So, like, there's lots of good checks. They're more on the support side today, but you know, you can see this getting extended further with other best practices and security things that you should be doing as best practice. So, it's good. And then our final Google story. Hello, Milano. Ciao. 
New cloud region in Milan now open. The Milan Google region is open in partnership with Tim, which is a local data center company. The new Milan region, Europe-West 8, is now part of the GCP global network of 34 regions and 104 zones, bringing cloud services to users in over 200 countries and territories worldwide. The new region has three cloud zones, and their standard services including Compute Engine, GKE, Cloud Storage, Persistent Disk, Cloud SQL, and Cloud Identity. And like all new region announcements, um, I have put it down on my list to travel so that I can inspect it personally. Yes, yes, perfect. That's what you need all the time. <laughs> Moving to Azure, uh, and once again, Azure SDK for Go is generally available, allowing you to perform management actions on Azure resources using the Resource Manager library and interact with Azure services like Identity, Key Vault, Tables, and Service Bus using their respective libraries, all at the fast, fast compiled code level of, of uh, Golang. <laughs> so now yeah, you can, now you can store it. your data that much faster. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> I've never really felt the need to, to con, you know, configure, you know, any kind of cloud resources in Go, but, you know, yeah, why not? You know, why not? It could be fun. Why switch languages if I don't have to? Yeah, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Meet, meet your developer where they're at. They can build infrastructure from Go. Yeah. Uh, for those of you who don't know how to break up your JSON objects into something readable, the Cosmos API for MongoDB now supports <laughs> up to 16 megabit documents versus the previous limit of 2 megabits, which is an 8x increase for those who can do math. So they know how to break it up, but they won't. <laughs> so at least someone can go and flip this on. Like, ah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I was thinking more, it's like, oh, it's the people who are storing binary objects in JSON that they, you know, for some reason they want to show that into Mongo for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you want to play with that new 16 megabit feature, you can now do that locally with the Cosmos DB Linux emulator that provides a local environment that emulates Cosmos DB for dev purposes on Linux or Mac allowing you to do local testing and not incurring any additional Google or Azure costs, which is sweet. That is very cool. Anytime you can do local testing and, and play with things without spending any money, I'm, I'm a fan of. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's, it's nice that more and more companies are getting these stubs that at least you know mimic the reactions you expect and you can do that local development, which is great. Uh, if you want to know what's new in Azure Firewall, well, there's a bunch. First up is the Intrusion Detection and Prevention System, uh, or IDPS, signatures lookup is now generally available, including the IDPS private IP ranges are now in preview. TLS inspection, certificate auto generation now generally available, web categories lookup is now generally available, and structured firewall logs now in preview is all available to you in the Azure Firewall. The structured firewall logs is actually pretty nice. Uh, gives you a great way to see... Uh, make your logs human readable, which is always appreciated when I'm trying to figure out what the hell happened to my connection. The TLS certificate auto generation is very interesting because that's you know that's empowering man in the middle attacks, but automated. You know, so it's sort of a you know from an inspection point of view, I get it, but it, from a privacy point of view, a little nervous tracking. You know? Well, they, they do call out the TLSI certificate auto generation that they uh, it's for non-production deployments. Uh, you can use the Firewall yeah. <laughs> Premium TLS Inspection Certificate Audition Mechanism, which creates the following three resources for you. A managed identity, a key vault, and a self-signed root CA certificate. Just choose the new managed identity, and it ties the three resources together in your premium policy set up in TLS inspection. That's what it's about. Uh, but that EPS signature lookup is pretty good. Uh, now you can look up 58,000 different signatures. Web categories lookup is for filtering, of course, so you can filter based on porn or gambling or whatever else you want to do there. And then, like I mentioned, that structured firewall log uh, gives you uh, all kinds of data about your network rule log, which one it was, which one killed it, and threat intelligence data, IDPS data, all easy to you. And the additional custom query language or KQL log queries uh, are added to look through those structured firewall logs. Nice. I don't know why restricting private IP ranges is, is not a table state feature for these firewalls. Like, and it's been a secondary release on all of them, I think. Yeah, because none of them care about your on-premise environment until you yell about it. <laughs> well, but I mean, that's the number one use case for a lot of these things. Like, you know, like uh, a lot of security orgs are still sort of navigating away from their high-wall gardens, and this is a way to sort of move that high wall out into the cloud. And so it's, I see private IP ranges configured more than any other sort of category, which I don't agree with, but so I see. Uh, Microsoft has updated its Responsible AI Standard, the internal playbook that guides its AI product development and deployment. As part of the aligning products to this new standard, they have updated their approach to facial recognition, including adding a new limit access policy, 
removing AI classifiers of sensitive attributes and bolstering their investment in fairness and transparency. Uh, and if you go, if you click into this article, they actually have some examples where they, you know, they call out areas where, you know, facial, facial detection, you know, can do bad things like uh, face size based on distance from camera. <laughs> you know, all of a sudden you're not recognizable because you're five feet away from the camera versus two feet away from the camera or you're turning your face or the lighting is different or there's been a significant change in your appearance because you put on glasses. Those are all things that need to be detected by the face tech API that's all available now in their new guidelines. Uh, but, you know, ultimately, we're going to put this story in here is because uh, I just did some traveling, and uh, facial recognition in international travel is everywhere. <laughs> like, yeah. getting into the UK, coming back from the US, like, oh, you just stand in front of this thing, and it takes a picture of you, and then they magically know it's me. Or, like, it's kind of like, getting a little bit into this world of, like, hmm, this is starting to make me concerned. My head is completely in the sand on this, but, it, you know, because it is such an enablement, like, you know, being able to just do a visual scan and then let me in customs because of the verification versus, you know, a, a manual interview process, which I think, you know, is very subjective to the skill level of whoever's doing the interview. But on the other side, yeah, there's the flip side of this, which is like you won't be able to hide. This will no. be, you know, if the government wants to get you for a good reason or not, you know, it'll be very scary. So. Yeah. I mean, I mean, how many, how many January 6th, uh, insurrectionists have been caught just yeah. by face facial recognition yeah. and you know oh you were in there and we know you were there because we tracked your phone to this room mm-hmm. <laughs> and so we know you're in nancy pelosi's office and so you're screwed man you're guilty and i watch too much sci-fi to not be concerned but yeah. it's hard to hard to you know get over that with all the the positive enablement it has yeah, yeah the law and order you know enhance enhance yeah always fun on our last story for Azure, uh, the, you can now simplify and centralize your network security management with the Azure Firewall Manager, which is now joined available for both WAF and DDoS. So now you can now you can manage WAF, Azure Front Door, Azure Application Gateways, and DDoS all from a standard new interface. What is it with everyone getting standard interfaces for firewall managers? AWS is big on this right now. Google is big on this right now. Azure is big on this. Like they just realize that no one wants to manage firewalls in twenty different re- areas. Yeah, have you ever met a security team? Those are the people typically having to use these tools. Yeah, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, it's on one hand, it's nice because it centralizes things, but on the other hand, it's sort of uh, it's an, an abstraction layer away from understanding what's actually doing what. And so it's you know, especially with some of the the new naming, they're both you know, uh, Microsoft and Amazon, especially like they're just not. Very, they're very obscure names, or not obscure names, but they're non-deterministic. So it's just like, is the network firewall? No, it's in the network firewall manager. Oh, okay, it's a whole different console. I mean, as long as I can find it in both places, it's, I don't care. It's, it's when they start putting things in only yeah. one place or the other, that's when I'll get cranky. Mm-hmm. All right, well, that is it for the new news. We'll do the lightning round real quick. Uh, we are going to try our new new scoring method. So, because Peter's been gone for so long, we've had to brainstorm new ideas. And someone uh, in our chat room suggested, why don't you have us vote on it? So, if you'd like to vote on which of us is the funniest, we will do a pro-rated point <laughs> after you vote. Uh, so, go to the general channel of our CloudPod Slack room, which you can find invite or you know links to in our website, thecloudpod.net. Uh, and so we'll read through these. We'll say whatever we say funny. If there's anything funny to be said, and then you can vote on which one who you think won. Uh, the lightning round this week, and we'll then add it to the score. At least prorated in my favor somehow. No, probably not. I mean, you're you're because you know, <laughs> Peter's been gone for so long now at this point that uh, you know we're, I'm at five, you're at one, Jonathan's at two, and then Peter has a point, which I don't even remember how we gave Peter a point at this point, but he has a point. So yeah, yeah. So there we are. I'm sure you earned it. Yeah, and uh, since I just <laughs> talked for I don't know however long we've been recording. Yeah, uh, 48 minutes. I'm letting you go first. Sounds good. All right. Reduce read I.O. costs of your Amazon Aurora Postgres SQL database with range partitioning. Only increased, you know, increasing the price of your Amazon Aurora Postgres SQL by using more memory to combine the data across those partitions. <laughs> yeah, it reduces I.O. costs, but you know, actual costs? Nah. No. <laughs> Introducing managed zone permissions for Azure Cloud DNS. Oh, sorry. Sorry, it's Google. Sorry, Google, not Azure. My bad. I hope this just means permissions to modify the zones and not just, you know, modify where what's authoritative in a specific zone. <laughs> this sounds confusing. Yeah, this is attribute-based access to modify your zones, which is always good. 
announcing private network solutions on Google Distributed Cloud Edge. Oh, so you mean the thing I had to put into my data center or in my building with my own network now supports my network? Sweet. Thanks for that. Well, it supports someone else's network, right? You can push it to the cloud. Well, I mean, it's, it's always a cloud because it's the, the Google Distributed Cloud Edge is like uh, their answer to uh, uh, was Amazon's dumb thing. I can't remember the name of it at this moment, but it's basically their hardware in your data center. So it's already in your private network. It's got to support yeah, your private network. A, yeah. Yeah, I think it's for cell phone activity. Yeah, something like that. New Amazon EC2 R6 ID instances with NVMe local instance storage up to 7.6 terabytes. So in true fashion for me, I have a joke that doesn't really work unless you're reading it, which is great for podcasts, but it seems like a very rigid instance because R6 ID kind of looks like rigid to me. And now you realize why I'm never funny on this. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking about how you can now lose 7.6 terabytes of data in one go by just deleting your instance or stopping it. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Or just rebooting it. That's pretty sweet. Yeah, yeah it's pretty nice, right? Yeah. Azure API management, reusable policy fragments. Just like the fragment of that sentence. <laughs> right. <laughs> I had to stop halfway through because I thought I was convinced I was messing it up. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I did to that article, that headline, was I added the word Azure. <laughs> so we knew what it was. Yeah, AP yeah. Management Reusable Policy Fragments. Yeah. They're really phoning that in. Yeah. Uh, I also was concerned about, I don't know about my APIs that only give me fragments back. I don't know if I want that either. So. No, it's cool because it's just the management. Yeah. The last one, Azure Cosmos DB serverless container storage limit increased to one terabyte. What could go wrong? I was just thinking, you know, this is you know, this is trying to you know match up to that MongoDB data loss uh, feature. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, one's trying to split it up. One's like store it, store it all here. It's cool. Yeah. Well, uh, based on where we're at right now, I believe that we will be dropping this episode right on top of the Amazon Security uh, Reinforce event. Uh, as well as the Sustainability Summit for Google Cloud, which is great. So, uh, you know, if you're listening to this right now, you might be able to still collect a live stream if we got the show notes out on time, which, you know, can happen, uh, may happen, I don't know. Uh, so best <laughs> of luck to you if you're interested in either of those. Uh, they are probably going on right now as we listen to our, our us blabbing on, so you're already in the wrong place. Uh, and then, of course, going into <laughs> August, Black Hat is uh, coming up August 6th through the 11th. VMworld is going to be at the end of August, August 29th through September 1st. Excited to see what they have to say about Tanzu. Can't wait. And then Google Cloud Next, October 11th through the 13th, uh, all coming down the pipe very, very quickly. Uh, this year is flying by. I can't believe it's already June. Like, where did the rest of the year go? Yeah. I don't know. Anyways, that is it for things coming up in the cloud. Check them out. Uh, we will be talking about Reinforce here in two weeks. And we this week is actually Remars, uh, which I saw they announced a robot. So maybe we'll talk about that next week. We'll see. But, uh, you know, all good things. Have another great week in the cloud. See you later, Ryan. See ya. Bye, everybody. And that is the week in cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag the cloud pod. Or join our Slack channel, go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions.